Father in heaven, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for the lessons uh, that you are giving us today. Please give us hearts to hear, eyes to see. And we pray, Father, that in light of this day to come, our lives would be changed accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. So a question. How do future events change the way you think and act? An example. Who has been on a holiday before, perhaps let's say to a sunny place, where you had to get there by plane? And who made sure that their bags were packed with the right clothing and everything else necessary in the lead up to that day? I bet you did it. The day of that flight was going to happen. The time was set. The plane was going to fly whether you were on it or not. And I bet you oriented your life around that flight. And the more important the flight is, the more concern we have to make sure that we're fully aligned and fully ready. Don't we? When I book a flight to Australia, which I don't do often, I make every effort to be 100% sure that I am on that plane with everything I need and my family. (laughs) I don't miss it, do I? Because it's an important day. It's an important event. That hour, I am there. The point is, We orient our lives around days and events that we think are important. Might be marriage, might be some other day. We shape our lives according to how important that day is or how important that event is. That's what we do, don't we? And this morning, Peter wants to get one thing front and centre in our minds. And this is the promised return of Jesus. Now it feels for me, in in preparing for this and in writing this, uh, that words seem to fail to capture the magnitude of what we're talking about here. I feel like my words need to come with the weight of a refrigerator and I've got a little feather Holidays don't hold a candle next to the significance of this day. Here are some of the ways the Bible speaks about this day. Two, two examples. In 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 6 to, 8, uh, 6 to 10, Peter, uh, sorry, Paul is speaking to persecuted Christians and he says this, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you And give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord 
and from the glory of his might. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. Or another verse. Jesus uh, is encouraging his disciples to stay ready for his return. And he says to them, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. So that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. And then listen to this for a way of describing the day of salvation. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. Did you catch that? Did you spot who was doing the reclining and who was doing the serving? You, believer, are doing the reclining. And the powerful king of heaven, Jesus, is doing the serving. And because of the life of Jesus, we know that this is not at all out of his character. This is the giving, serving God that we serve. And that is what we are anticipating on that day. You can't make this stuff up. This is the day to orient your life around. This is the day to be aware of. This is the day to get ready for and be excited about. So coming back to 2 Peter, this theme of the promised return of Jesus has been hanging in the background since early in the letter. As you'll know, we're in a, in a series in 2 Peter. We're currently in the fourth uh, and final session for this series. And earlier on, at the beginning of the letter, um, this, this, this theme of this day has been there in the background. You don't have to turn with me, I'll just um, point them out to you. In chapter 1, verse 11, Peter told us about the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, as something to look forward to. In verse 16 of that same chapter, he reminded us that his message was about the coming of our Lord, and, uh, Lord Jesus Christ in power. A reference that I argued was to Jesus' second coming. And then in verse 19, Peter exhorted us to pay attention to the scriptures until this day dawned. It was in the background in chapter 1. This day also stood in the background in chapter 2. We highlighted last week uh, the way Peter went to great lengths to impress upon our hearts and minds that self-indulgent false teachers and by implication those who follow them, would certainly be destroyed. Now, while he only uses the language of day explicitly in chapter 2, verse 9, he referred to that day in other ways at least four times in that chapter. For example, in verse 3, when he said that the false teacher's destruction was not asleep. The day was in Peter's mind. It's been in the background in chapter 1, it's been in the background in chapter 2, and this week in chapter 3, as we come to the end of the letter, this theme of the promised coming of Jesus rises to the surface. 
The delay of this day is what triggers Peter's concern in this chapter. So look with me. After telling the recipients in verse 1 that he has written this letter as a reminder, he reminds them again in verse 2 that they should be, as we said in previous weeks, Bible people and recall the words of the prophets and the command of Jesus. Then in verse 3, he moves to something he wants them to be particularly aware of. Let's read it together. Look, he says in verse 3, Above all, this is to keep you safe, believer. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. This is an important context to what Peter says in this chapter. This is the issue he wants to address. The promised coming day of Jesus. And it runs as the backbone right through the chapter. Follow with me and I'll show you. He brings it up again in verse 7. You see there? calling it the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. He brings it up again in verse 9. He speaks of the Lord not being slow concerning his promise, which we know in context is a mention of the promise of coming. In verse 10, he is explicit again when he says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. In verse 12, we are reminded that we are looking forward to the day of God. In verse 14, the day is assumed when he says, So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. This word found here being the same word that was translated in verse 10 as laid bare and linking this finding to that day. Make sure that you're found on that day, spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. And finally, Peter rounds out the chapter and the letter in verse 18, saying, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Now, I know that if you're looking in your NIV right now, that's not what it says. The NIV has smoothed it out for contemporary English, which is fine, while the ESV stays closer to the Greek wording. And because this is not a usual way of phrasing forever, I think Peter's phrase is intentional. He says, literally, to the day of eternity, to the day of forever. He puts the eternal day before our eyes as he closes out the letter. This day is Peter's big concern in the chapter. Peter wants this day front and center in our minds, and he wants us to think rightly about it. Or, put another way, in keeping with our theme of the series, stay safe by getting the return of Jesus clear in your minds. Now, to help us think rightly about this day, Peter has six lessons for us. And that's where we're going to go with the rest of our time. 
six lessons to help us think rightly about the return of Jesus. The first lesson, first thing we need to be aware of is that the day, are we good? No? There we go. Is that the day, the promised day, will be mocked. Be aware of that, believer. As we've already seen, this is what triggers Peter's teaching on this coming day in this chapter, and I'll read it again. He says in verse 3, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is the coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Now, it's not entirely clear whether Peter has introduced a new category of people here or whether he still has the false teachers in mind while talking about these scoffers. Personally, I take the ambiguity to mean that it could be either and experience seems to fit the idea that scoffing on this issue will come from outside the church as much as it does from within. Either way, scoffers whether inside or outside, will come mocking the idea of a message about Jesus returning to earth to judge the living and the dead and to save his people. Why does Peter want us to understand this? It's because knowing it in advance causes the event to lose its power. That event of being mocked It disarms that mocking. We will be rocked and lose our confidence if we're not prepared for the message we embrace to be scoffed at by some people. If our expectation is that everyone will embrace this message, we can potentially be put off in our confidence when the reality of scoffers comes. There's a kind of strength that comes in knowing in advance that some people will think the message is foolish. It braces you for reality. It removes the mystery. Because often it can, it can simply be that the unknown catches us off guard and throws us into disarray. But you know this beforehand, beloved. Scoffers will come, scoffing the day. So don't be thrown off. Second, just because the promised day is mocked doesn't erase its reality. The promised day will certainly come because it has a precedent. The day has a precedent, which means that it's happened before. Peter responds directly to the challenge of an apparently non-existent day of the Lord by saying that those who make such scoffing statements have forgotten a key factor. In verses 5 to 7, he says, But these scoffers deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. Now, the idea of deliberately forgetting seems like an oxymoron. Some people think the idea of bias is at play. They, as it were, they so wish one thing to be the reality 
that they are blind to clear evidence to the contrary. And I think this makes sense here. What they've missed is the precedent of God's judgment in the account of the flood. And we know that Peter is bringing up the flood as a precedent because he draws the parallel in verse 7 between the flood narrative and the future day of judgment. Look with me, he says in verse 7, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. He's drawing a parallel. Now the phrase by the same word here in verse 7 is key. You see, it wasn't just waters doing what waters do when the flood came. Rather, it was by God's word that the flood came. The waters weren't acting on their own. They were doing God's will. They were doing his command. And so Peter draws the parallel and says that by the same word, by that same will, there is another universal judgment ordained. The idea is that if you're not sure about whether God will judge the world, note that he has done it once before. God was pleased to bring the world into existence, but he was also prepared to flood it because of wickedness. By appealing to God's previous ways, Peter is appealing to God's character. And he is working with the assumption that God's character doesn't change. This is what we saw last week so clearly in chapter 2. The pattern of the Bible is that God judges people who ignore him and live their own way. And he rescues those who repent of that sin and trust in his provision of grace. What has happened in the Jesus moment, and this is key, is not that God has suddenly decided to not be so serious about sin. That's not what's happened. His attitude towards sin is as serious as he is holy, and that hasn't changed. Nor has he become more loving all of a sudden. Jesus doesn't make the Father loving. Jesus was sent... Because the Father is loving. What has changed is that the Son has come and borne God's wrath by becoming a sacrifice for sin. And this has made provision for sinners like me and you to find refuge in him and escape his judgment. Anyone can get in on this provision. By receiving this sacrifice by faith. So, the promised day, second thing Peter wants to note, will certainly come because God has done it before and he will do it again. The delay is not about character. It's not about God's character. He says it's not about his character and it's not about failure either. The day is delayed because of grace, not failure. The, day is, the delay currently is not because God is slow or has failed to keep his promise. And it's not because God has miscommunicated. The delay is actually because God is gracious. 
This is a powerful turning of the tables, isn't it? Look what he says in verses 8 to 9. He's just said, scoffers will come, but the day has a precedent. And then he says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This is so important to Peter, he brings it up again in verse 15, where he says, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. You see that? The Lord's patience. Isn't it amazing how the same experience can be read in two different ways, depending on your point of view? You could see the fact that Jesus hasn't returned yet as evidence that the apostles were wrong. Or you could see the fact that Jesus hasn't returned yet as God's gracious provision to you to repent, if that's what you need to do, and find grace from him. Given that Peter has called it in advance, it seems that the scales tip one way. And the two different perspectives end up with completely different views of God, I think, as well. The one seems to leave God more distant. Either he hasn't spoken, or he didn't speak well, or his true message has been lost, or he's impotent to do anything about it, or he just doesn't tell the truth. God feels distant if that's our view. But when you see that this delay is God's patience and grace, you see a different God. What patience? What love? Now we see his heart of compassion and kindness. God is not a cruel judge, bitter and angry and chomping at the bit for someone to let him at us. His heart is warm and filled with grace. You can't improve upon his kindness. If your heart is sobered by the sound of his coming, but melts at the news of his patience, then your heart is seeing the true God who is. If you've only got one and not the other, keep looking. If you are here and you are not a follower of Jesus, or maybe you are and you're drifting off and you know you need to come back, one of the reasons he has not come back yet, this is extraordinary, is because of his patience toward you. History has carried on under his providence up to this very day as a display of God's patience and grace toward you. This moment right now is a moment for you. If that feels weighty enough to make you cry, then you're feeling it correctly. It is. God's love and grace is overwhelming 
And when he opens your eyes and you get a glimpse of it, you feel like a thimble trying to take in an ocean. Open your heart and let him pour in his love and turn to him today. Why? Well, partly because of the kind of God that he is. But also because, fourthly, the day will come suddenly and bring with it God's judgment. The Bible tells us that God is slow to get angry. Not that he never gets angry. The Lord is patient with you. But I can't guarantee you tomorrow. We are all as fragile as a poppy flower. Look what Peter says straight after explaining that God is being patient in his delay. He says, verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Notice the imagery? Like a thief. When do thieves come? That's right. We don't know. Who knows the day in advance whether they will get burgled tomorrow? No one. That's not how it works. Jesus describes the scene like this, also drawing on the flood narrative as a precedent and says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. That's Jesus coming. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Noah and his family get in the boat. People are outside. Perhaps they are scoffing. Check out this bloke out in a boat on the land. Ha! Then the clouds appear. And it starts raining. The rain will stop. That's what rain does. And the rain doesn't stop. Four days later, the rain still hasn't stopped and the fields are starting to get pretty flooded. Ten days later, you've moved to higher ground with all your stuff and you're a bit ticked that your house is flooded. Fifteen days later and the waters are ridiculous. People are starting to panic. Travelling uphill is getting tiring. You're cold. Everything is soaking. 20 days later and food is running thin. People are fighting over what's left. Noah's boat is nowhere to be seen. 30 days later and you are panicking. You're as high as you can go and the rain's not stopping. You cannot believe what is appearing the inevitable. The mountain peak you are on is surrounded and the waters are rising. You have nowhere to go. The waters are absolutely tumultuous and you are stranded. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. 
while people are having breakfast at the handlebar and drinks at Rusty on a sunny summer afternoon just before they head off to their friend's wedding and they won't be in the ark and the rain will start. That's what Jesus is saying. But you've got to note an important thing right here. If you are not trusting in Jesus, know this. If this second coming of Jesus was his only coming, none of us would have any hope. The remarkable reality and the Christian message and hope is that Jesus didn't come, or he's not just coming once. He's coming twice. He came already. You see, he can't have sin in his kingdom, and so he came the first time to deal with sin by bearing the punishment for it himself, so that when he comes the second time, he can bring us with him. The marvelous thing about Jesus is he came already so that that day doesn't have to surprise you like a a thief. So that it doesn't have to be that day. He loves you. He came to die for you. So that he could be the rescue for you. Jesus is the ark right now and he pleads with you to receive his rescue. The boat, no doubt, didn't look like a good rescue plan that the people needed back then. And the cross may not look like the rescue plan you need right now. But God, there is a precedent and God has foretold us this is the rescue you need. And I've provided it for you. The day will come suddenly and it will bring God's judgment. But not only that, for those who trust in Jesus gloriously, it will be a day of salvation as well. Notice what Peter says in verse 13 about our hope. He says, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. It's not just the removal of what's bad, but the creation of what's good. It's not just a floaty cloud experience. It's a new heavens and a new earth. And see where Peter's focus is on this day? Where righteousness dwells. I don't know what creation itself will be like. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. And maybe they'll be in technicolor. I don't know. I trust that it will be amazing. But that's not Peter's focus. His focus is societal and ethical. New pure, completely uncorrupted society. Isn't that the world we all really want? A world where we're not caught in financial scams, 
where it doesn't feel like everyone is after your money in this dog-eat-dog world, a world where there are no stabbings in the streets, a world where relationships are not marred by bitterness, unforgiveness, jealousy, envy, selfishness, competitiveness. Can you imagine? Totally free, totally known, totally loved, naked and unashamed, as Genesis would have it. A world where power is not exploited, but used to serve. And it won't just be out there, it will be in here. We ourselves will experience full functional righteousness. No disordered longings or fighting with sin. Death swallowed up. And as one of my favorite lines in Isaac Watts says, and I've said it before, when I can read my title clear, I think he says, ten mansions beyond this life. I bid farewell to every fear and wipe my weeping eyes. And I will bathe my weary soul in seas of heavenly rest. And not a wave of trouble will roll across my peaceful breast. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's the day we're hoping for. And finally, I think it should be clear by now, the promised day changes the way we think and act. This is where Peter's going. This is what Peter wants. Peter wants to connect this day with our ethics. These are not just theological niceties for us to affirm. They're not just things for us to think, oh yes, that's nice, that will happen, carry on how I used to live. No, Peter wants our lives to change in light of this day. This is what he does in verse 11. This is where he draws down his conclusion, and that's where we'll draw down our conclusion for our time here this morning. I love his way of phrasing things in verse 11. Look how he puts it. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Good question, Peter. I love how he puts it, by phrasing it as a question, he kind of puts it back, the ball back into your court. You tell me. Think about the things that I've just said. What do you think ought to be the response now to those realities? You see that? That's an interesting way to phrase it. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be, Maudlin wrote? In holy and godly lives, as you look forward to the day of God. Like we mentioned at the start, about orienting our lives around a holiday, how much more orienting our lives around this day? Think about some of the ways that this cashes out in our counselling, as we 
pastor one another. Peter doesn't tease out all of these implications for himself. He teases out the implication of holy and godly living. But as we press into that and flesh it out, we see that's going to change the way that I view suffering. That's going to change my attitude when that comes along. This day is going to change the way I do parenting. This, this day is going to change what I see as priorities in my life. This day is going to change what my hopes really are. This day is going to change the decisions that I make with my money, what I spend my money on. This day is going to change what I spend my time on. This day is going to fuel sacrificial service as I wait for that day. All kinds of changes, ethical changes, roll out of having this day front and centre in our hearts and minds. For the New Testament writers, this day is everywhere. In all that they write, this day is in the background. This day is underneath like a foundation shaping all of their counsel and this day is in their vision looking forward to this day. Paul can say in Romans 8, 24 and 25, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The promised day changes the way we think and act. And that's what Peter wants to have happen here. So as we come to a conclusion, as we come to the end of Peter's letter, let's read his final verses together. He says, Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, or since you know these things beforehand, take care that you are not carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.